Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Gieschen, I write the Necker Substack, and this is my conversation with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I'm sure you all know Patrick as the host of Invest Like the Best. He's also CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. He's a venture investor. He does a ton of things and meets a ton of interesting people, which is what we're getting into in this conversation. This conversation was originally published at Compound. That's with compound.com. So you can find a full transcript over there. I'll link to it in the Substack. Um, but I also wanted to release the audio because, well, I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, Patrick is absolutely fascinating. So let's go. Let's talk about uh, David. And and I was struck by, so you previously mentioned this idea of the Gutenberg's parenthesis, right? And you even said that you kind of stop reading books or they should all be one-tenth of the, of the length. And now um, I was very happy to see that David joined um, Colossus. And I guess his function is kind of, he, he takes a book and, and kind of translates it into audio. So I'm curious how you think about, like, I guess, first of all, like what you saw in, in David, but also how you think about this sort of, I don't know, um, this process and like the value of audio, the role of books, how do you learn? Just talk to me about the parenthesis and, and maybe how, how you think David fits into that. Yeah, well, I would say they're two very different questions. So maybe I'll start with what we saw in David and then and then talk about audio. I, I don't think it's very hard if you listen to David for five minutes uh, to see what, what I saw in David. <laughs> I think everyone does, which is insane curiosity, passion, intensity, obsessiveness, in his case, for biographies of founders through history, and wanting to share that back with an, an eager audience that's interested in the same topics. And David has this, you know, use the term life's work, something I think a lot about. David has this quality that is very rare to encounter where you find somebody onto a problem. doesn't really matter what the problem is. Like, I love how he profiles James Dyson, the, the vacuum cleaner maker. Mm. Like, I don't think there's anything terribly inherently interesting about vacuum cleaners, but which is, it just kind of shows you like the problem itself sometimes doesn't matter, but you find these people that are on one of these scent trails and uh, will stop at nothing to stay on the trail. And you can just tell that with David in seconds, if not minutes, yeah. uh, certainly doesn't take an hour and it's infectious. You, you finish a conversation with him and you want to go run harder at whatever it is you're running at, um, focus more than you were, be more intentional, think longer term, you know, all these platitudes that everyone pays lip service to in business and investing and then doesn't really do. He actually is doing it. Uh, and when you find one of those people, which is basically my, now it's my main focus in my career is finding people like this and figuring out how to partner with them, mostly through investing, uh, but sometimes through media, as, as is the case with David, you just do whatever you can to be around them more. Like the, the, the world feeds off energy of people like David and inertia is a hell of a thing. Like most stuff just stays the same. So it takes tremendous energy and trajectory and focus to change status quo takes people like him. Um, so that's what we saw in him is this rare quality of someone doing their life's work with an energy that's hard to uh, understate. Now on the, on the question of audio, I, I, I just find audio to be this feels like to me, a secret hiding in plain sight. Everyone loves to learn everyone, you know, everyone's loves content. Everyone loves consuming content. It seems as though no matter how much great content is created, there's not enough of it. Like I, I, I find myself all the time without a great piece of content to consume. Mm. And like the, like the demand supply thing just hasn't reached an equilibrium yet. And maybe it never will. And that audio is unique in the sense that it is at least 10 times easier to create a, an unbelievable hour of audio for me. And in my formats interview, you know, interviewing someone great like David, that episode between he and I took an hour and a half to record. Uh, it will be listened to probably my guess is millions of times by the time it's all said and done. Yeah. yeah. Um, an hour and a half for millions of listens and people will listen all the way through and they'll consume it all. If you translated that conversation into, into text, it would be about the length of, of a short book. If we wanted to create a book of similar quality, it would take a year probably. I mean, I've written a book. It, it took yeah. me a year and, and my book was not nearly as good as that conversation with David was. So I think it's leverage on both sides. It's unbelievably easier to create something that's great in audio. It's also drastically easier to consume 
take someone an hour and a half, or if you're like most people and you listen at, you know, one and a half times speed or whatever, it takes less than that. And it has an emotional resonance that the written word just, just can't match. You cannot, if you read David's words versus listen to them, some huge percent of the value would be lost. So that, that trifecta is amazing to me, much easier to create, much easier to consume, much more impactful when consumed. Those are what make audio so powerful. Now, this isn't some panacea. I want all the stuff. I want great books and great movies and great podcasts and great you know works of art and, and, and all of it. Some things are perfect in text. Some th- I, 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 I'm back to reading a lot more books, um, but very, usually fiction, you know, very specific mm-hmm. kinds of books. Uh, I think most nonfiction stuff is better in conversation. The reason I started my podcast back way back when was I was frustrated by how imprecise even the best book on a topic was as it related to my specific questions and curiosities. When I went to the world's best expert on whatever, I found I got exactly what I wanted quickly with higher impact. I think if you wanted to learn about anything in the world, you'd be far better off if you could get access to them, spending time with the world's leading thinkers on it and asking them questions directly than by reading the five or 10 best books on that topic. Um, That's, almost always the case. Like if I want to learn about something, I am not reading books to start. Books are diluted on average. They have to be 224 pages because the stupid bind, binding has to be a stupid, yeah. you know, certain width. I mean, there's always ridiculous things that that drive content formats. So if I wanted to learn about something new, I would, I would figure out who the five best people are. I'd get to them. I'd talk to them. I'd ask them questions. And I would probably know more than anyone else that had read every book on the topic um, so that to me is the power of audio. It's just this crazy leverage it represents. Uh, and the fact that it's the oldest form of communication, you know, like the, we, before written word, we were drawing pictures, right. And picture stories and certainly language was, is kind of the oldest thing we're aware of this, you know, audio language. And so I don't know, I, to me, it's just, it's incredibly fun. It's incredibly powerful. It's underestimated. The audiences are huge. I mean, we feel the equivalent of all the NFL stadiums when, when you know, through our podcast, listening to us yeah. talk about wonky business and invest, investing stuff. Like imagine this is like detailed kind of dry stuff. Imagine something more general interest. Uh, yeah. you, know, you can fill the world stadiums. So that's what I think about audio. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. And it's one of those, like the niche of the market is, is much bigger as you, uh, as you explored, but I'm, I'm curious, right? So the, so the podcast has grown a ton and it always strikes me that it seems like you're, well, there's, there's different things. Like, first of all, I, I'd love, I'd love to know you put out transcripts. I think you're investing more in the business than, than most podcasts and you're building kind of a, a platform, right? You have a team, you bring on people like David and, and others. Is there a guiding philosophy and, and how do you think about the bar of what, I mean, when you said, you basically said the, there's not enough great content, but like, has, has the bar shifted for you for what, for what is great content? It's already two questions in one again. Um, has the bar shifted? Yeah, it sh- I, hopefully it's always shifting, right? Like yeah. I, I want my next conversation that I record to be the best one I've done. That's certainly not always the case or not always true, but we're always trying to think about what makes these good in the first place, what can make them better, both for me, like I need to enjoy the hell out of it. The, the ones that I don't enjoy always suck. And invariably the ones that I don't enjoy are ones that were sort of like, not originated from us. Like it wasn't the result mm-hmm. of some curiosity that we had or that I had. It was a big name that, you know, uh, views us as a, as a, you know, New York times like equivalent in, in the investing industry and, you know, sought us out and it's hard to say no, like that, 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 t- yeah. that happens over and over again. And uh, I'd much rather talk to someone completely unknown that's obsessed about some niche. So yeah, they can always get better. The quality bar should always be going up. Um, and that will always be true. Uh, I'm forgetting your, the first part of your question. Well, I, I guess I'm wondering, is there like a guiding philosophy behind oh, like how you think about Colossus? About the business. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not a goals person. So I'm not, I'm not striving towards some end state for Colossus. I'm not, you know, uh, big, hairy, audacious goals may work some of the time. I'm actually very suspicious of them. I actually think most of the time they're very bad. You know, putting a man on Mars or building a city on Mars, maybe that's an amazing goal. And if anyone can achieve it, it's Elon um, or these other very ambitious founders. Right. 
it's just not my personal style. I think, I think having a singular goal that's far in the future that kind of crowds out serendipity and discovery along the way is just not my style. So I, I have no 10 year plan for Colossus. I have a perennial plan, which is we've already kind of said it. How can we produce as many like 10 out of 10 audio content episodes as possible? Now, my interests primarily are business and investing. I'm interested in other stuff too. I'm interested in nature. I'm interested in lots of things. Um, I don't know that I'd want to listen to podcasts on those things. So in this regard, like the ambition is how can we create as many? I I would listen to multiple a day. How do we create multiple a day that are as good as our very best episodes? Like that's my only real question with Colossus. David is doing that. Like, so we, we, we encounter David and we're like, how do we work with this person? Like this, this person is doing what we want to do. Yeah. Could, could we join forces in some productive way? Um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm late. I'm incredibly high energy in some regards and I'm incredibly and lazy in other regards, which I think is an asset of mine. I, I think it's good to be lazy in certain ways. My instinct is always, if there's something that needs doing that's important, but that I don't want to do like build infrastructure around it, build systems mm-hmm. around it, hire people, you know, hire contractors, create a repeatable system for something that's valuable, but boring, uh, boring to me. And it's usually not boring to someone else. Like everyone's got different interests and tastes. So that looks like ambition from the outside, but in many ways, it's really laziness. Like in many ways, I'm, I'm just Colossus's main customer and, and first customer. And if they can cover all the stuff that I don't want to do for me and do it for others, I think that's a really powerful model on the route to creating more of these really valuable audio conversations or audio episodes. David's it's just him, right? Just him talking. So we don't, I don't care about the format, but now when I want to learn about, I just listened to the one he did on um, uh, Harry Clay uh, Frick. I wanted to learn about him. I don't want to go read the thousand page biography. I want to go listen to David talk for 45 minutes at two times speed and get like 90 something percent of it and be energized and have gotten a walk in. Right. Rather than sit for two weeks and read this dense biography. Um, So that's the ambition for Colossus is like, how do we find as many people like host equivalents that we can serve, you know, me being the first and what can we arm them with to reach a bigger audience and do a better job and all those things uh, and extract as much interesting knowledge from that platform as possible. I think that that's the mindset doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. And that will lead us in really interesting directions uh, where I don't know. I never would have guessed that we'd be partnering with David in the way that we were, we are, uh, or that we partner with uh, someone like Will Thorndike, who's a res- an investor that I respect deeply and sort of got me interested in investing in many ways in my early twenties. And now he's, you know, in partnership with us doing his own show. None of these things were predictable and weren't a big, hairy, audacious goal. They were just byproducts of this natural search that we're doing. And so we're going to keep doing that. And I don't know where that goes. Uh, And if you want to call that, you know, ambition, great. I I just think of it as curiosity and wanting to learn and and getting as much of that as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering if there, if there's a tension now, because it sort of has grown out of your own interest. And I I guess we've hit on the, now on the, the growth without goals. And, and you wrote about that once and you basically said that it meant, commit to something daily and protect it with your life. Right. And like, like figure out, and for, I guess for you, it's being this scout and, and this router of, of ideas. And like, I guess as it grows as an organization, you bring on people, like what's the thing that you're fighting to protect? Is it just like that natural curiosity versus the, the scale or what, what's the essence you have to protect to keep it? What it, what, what it well, I think, I think the soul or the essence to protect is just making sure that everyone else has that same mindset. So Let's take Will as an example. The Outsiders is one of the great investing books of all time. It's eight companies profiled in eight chapters. Each of those chapters took a year to research. So incredibly deep detail that Will did with graduate students, um, profiling some very famous CEOs and companies. And in each of those eight cases, it's probably the best piece of content on that company. Maybe not the most thorough or the most in-depth for sure, but the most incisive or insightful, like the most interesting, at least to me. Yeah. And each of them took a year. It was like an eight-year project to write that book. Eight years worth of time anyway. Now, Will, not surprisingly, wants to keep doing that. And he wants to build his own podcast and he owns it and we're his partner to you know, help produce it and distribute it. And 
we just don't want to get in his way. I mean, he, he, we don't care what the format is, but he can't help himself, but do this again. So he just did it for Transdime. He's going to do it for other companies and he has partners too. Uh, and to me, the format, I wouldn't be my format. They did four hours on Transdime and it was an incredibly deep dive. I absolutely love listening to it. I wouldn't create that personally. It wouldn't be my format form factor, but we just want to find people that are like that, that are just, it's commitment is one way of thinking about it. Compulsion is maybe a more powerful way of thinking about it. Like it's not that I'm committed to commitment makes it sounds like it's hard. Uh, I, every single day spend my days talking to people that I think are at the fringes of like distributions, like outliers, outliers in intelligence and interest and in performance and whatever, like extreme people. And it's a compulsion more than it's a commitment. Like I cannot help myself. I do it on Saturday morning, every Saturday morning, nonstop, every Sunday, like every day. I'm just doing it. It's what I like to do. And I guess you could say I'm committed to it. Uh, but if I rewrote that paper, because it sounds like I said commitment, I think more of it's just compulsion. I literally cannot help myself. Mm -hmm. So the commitment might be get rid of the stuff that gets in the way of the compulsion. That's right. probably a better framing. So protect my schedule. I have a lot of open time so that I can call these people, um, you know, protect, protect time at all costs to do the thing that is your compulsion. My friend Graham Duncan uh, has this amazing essay on building an investing platform. Mm -hmm. He has this line in there where it's like, figure out what your compulsion is and put that at the center of the platform. And if you can do that and crowd out distractions, you'll probably do a pretty great job. So whether it's Will, whether it's Jesse Pooji, whether it's Zach Foss, whether it's David Senra now, any other hosts that we might work with in the future, like enable that compulsion and get out of the way. Mm, interesting. So a bunch of things, but like, I guess, how do you find those people? Because I notice you sometimes seem to use Twitter to you like you throw out a, a question, like maybe it's your laboratory of sourcing ideas. Does it mostly come organically? Like one person leads you to the next interesting person or does it come out of the podcast? Or how do you go about finding the people at the fringes or the, the outliers? I find if you're, if you're onto a good compulsion, you don't really have to think about the answer to this question. Like okay. it, 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 yes, it's Twitter, it's books, it's conversations, it's in the woods, it's at a dinner party, it's, it's anywhere you are engaging with other people or stuff. You see breadcrumbs, right? Like, Ooh, yeah. that's it. Like, that's an interesting tweet. Oh, that's a, you know, that, that book cover looks interesting or this person seems switched on and isn't just talking about, you know, the, the latest round of golf or some nonsense. Yeah. It, it's, it's everywhere. If, if you're attuned to the thing you're interested in, you see breadcrumbs that are interesting everywhere. And yeah, it does tend to, you know, people like this tend to be on Twitter. So Twitter is a powerful place yeah. uh, cause it's like a matching algorithm for, you know, people like this, but it's everywhere. It's not just Twitter. So is it fair to say that the compulsion has kind of led you to this intersection of investing media technology and you sort of have, it, it, when you bump into somebody, there's always, I guess, a bucket where they could fit into in, in, in your world. Cause I, I was thinking you, there's a bunch of questions uh, or interviews where you talked about game design and you've interviewed a lot of people in that, um, in that space again today, which was really interesting. And there's always this question of like world building and, um, mm. and whether I'm, I'm curious whether that's what other concepts may be, but if that's a concept that you think about like actively and like, I guess there's a separate game design question, but like when you bump into somebody interesting, it seems like there's now you've built it in such a way that there's always some way for you to engage. You can interview them, you can invest in them um, or something like that. Like, is that by design? Is this like a, a just a, the lucky accident that, that a flywheel came out of it? There's, there's probably lots of interesting thoughts and in, in reaction to all that. As a kid, I was a huge gamer um, in, in, in a, modern sense of video games, but also I played a lot of chess. I played a lot, you know, per, like, you know, I played a lot of chess traveling around the country to play in chess tournaments. I liked games. Like I just really love games. I try to turn to me, conversation is kind of like a game, like, and I'm always interested in how much more interesting can I make a conversation that I'm in? You know, I don't do small talk well. So if I'm at a party or something, like I'm just always interested in how interesting something could get relative yeah. to like the baseline. Okay. And so I'm, I've always been interested in games in, in, in all their various facets. 
I, I will admit, like if I have, if there's a number one fantasy I have or ambition I have, it is designing a game that's self-perpetuating. I think if you, if you study the most interesting games, Mitch Lasky in today's episode talked about what he calls forever games, mm-hmm. something like League of Legends, which yeah. in, in what people thought was a hit-driven business, it seems as though actually the biggest games last for a really long time. Chess is a great example. I mean, chess hasn't changed in a long, long time. And nonetheless, it's just endlessly interesting and fascinating and fun. And I sort of think about my professional life as, as yeah, like you said, trying to build a world in which I can be a player and an operator that's just, it never ends. Like, it's just always fun. It's always interesting. There's always a new level. There's always a new something. There's a new energy source. And yeah, it turns out like a podcast, a media business, and an investing firm are two really great things to have when your game is people-centric and your game is effectively searching for interesting people. Being able to interview them and or invest in them are kind of like the two most fun things to be honest with you, which is probably why I've created the setup I have the way I have is, is it's a great way for me to have a world around my interest. And I've, we, we've in our, in our investing activity, this is something actually we explicitly look for. We call it world building. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes you meet these founders that are just so interested in what they're building that they want to control everything around it, the whole ecosystem around it. They want to, they want to own and run the conference versus attend others. Think of like Dreamforce at, at Salesforce. They, they want to have a language that's internal and a story that's internal to their business. They want lingo. They want inside jokes. They want um, practices and rituals. Um, they, they're like institution builders around and world builders around their, their core product and idea. We love that. Because you don't do any of that stuff unless you really care, unless you're really like waking up thinking about it. If you're in it to make an exit or, you know, make $10 million or, you know, whatever, be in the 30 under 30, like it's just not, you don't care about that stuff. But if you really want to build something enduring and are really doing that kind of life's work type mission, you tend to do this world building thing. And, and I, I think I, I, I do that a lot too. Physically, uh, you know, we're investing in heavily at some point here in a, in a new physical space to be able to do a lot of this stuff. And I just get very energized by that. So yes, I love gaming. I love game design. I've read a lot of books on game design. Uh, I love world building. And I like the reason I like game design even more than media maybe is media is very like literal. Like we create this conversation, you consume it or you don't. It's one-sided, it's one directional. Um, Gaming is interactive. So you have people opting in, participating, changing the landscape of the game, doing surprising things. I think social networks are, are, are sort of the ultimate interesting open-ended game of like you create a core action that's compelling, you know, a tweet, a TikTok video, a Instagram post, uh, whatever. And it's, you're just blown away by the emergent creativity that happens on top of those games and those platforms. Um, I don't want to stretch this analogy too far, but but you get the idea, like, yeah. Things that unleash human creativity and are fun and interesting and complex um, are really interesting to me, which is why I find myself always returning to game designers and, and game investors. Yeah. And I think Mitch, he he pointed out, right, in some games, I think this was EVE Online was, was the example, like once you create like a sandbox where, where players can unleash their creativity without a lot of rules, like just, just interesting things happen that you just, there's no way to anticipate that. So I'm curious if you bring that to the companies that you're building and I'm trying, I, I don't remember which conversation this was, but you described that you enjoyed kind of just studying how people build investment organizations. And you mentioned it was like kind of a, a pet, a pet project of like understanding how that works, what works. So I'm curious if this game design, this interactiveness, comes to the way you approach and you've, you're building different companies, right? Like media and, and two different, very different uh, types of investment businesses. So like, to what extent does that translate into how you think about, I guess, how much, you know, how much to delegate or like how much free space for experimentation you give people in those businesses or like whether there's that kind of ethos when you think about creating a business or, or a space. And, and, and I, I don't, I don't think building an investment business is all that different than building any kind of business. I think, the only reason to create a new one, you know, God knows there's enough, there's enough of everything. Like there's enough bad businesses. There's enough bad investing businesses. We don't need another average investing business. It just, it doesn't do anything for anyone, even though they're started every day. 
I think just like a regular business, if you're going to start a new investing business, you better be doing something really unique and differentiated and innovative and all these stupid words that we use to describe um, the new and the different. And if you're not, and you can't articulate really clearly what you're doing that's different, then I, I just don't think it's going to work. And so if I were, let's say I was an investor that only invested in other asset managers or other investment businesses, I'd be doing the same thing I'm doing investing in operating businesses, which mm. is like, why is this founder credibly or founders going to credibly work on this problem for decades? Like, mm. wh like what is the source of their obsession and their compulsion? And why do I believe that that obsessive compulsiveness will translate into success for this business? Um, what are the market conditions that make the timing right for this thing now? Mm. You know, are there tailwinds that are going to propel this thing forward no matter what the founder does? You want both, right? The inside and the outside. So what's the market signal? Um, and is there a good investment opportunity based on, you know, the price and all the normal things you would consider? And so, you know, that's how I think about the businesses. If you think about what we did at OSAM, you know, for a long time, OSAM was a pioneer in the in the 90s and early 2000s in quantitative investing. This is before my my participation in the business. Uh, you know, it was an innovator. Not many people did that. By the time I took over the business in 2018, there were so many quantitative factor investors. You know, it, it was a sea of competition. And the differentiation was frankly weak. Even with great track records, you couldn't be successful because there was just so much of it. Yeah. And so when we built Canvas, we were the first one to do that. It was completely different. Custom indexing didn't even exist as a category. We named the category. And we created something where when we went to sell it, there was no competition. Like it wasn't like, tell me how this is better than X, Y, or Z. Because there was no X, Y, or Z. Mm. It was something more valuable than the incumbent solution enabled by technology and by our unique history. We were uniquely suited to do it. And... Uh, it tapped into a pool of de latent demand that was explosive. Like the, it's, it's hard to describe. You'll know it when you see it, if you ever do it, when people want something and there's real innovation, they just say yes, immediately. Like our, our first meetings, people just bought it right away on a demo. And there wasn't, you know, all this like analytical back and forth RFP type stuff. It was just like, Oh no, no, no. Like we're in. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's the same with an investing business. Obviously, there's stories that take a long time to develop, um, and obviously, there's no overnight success. Um, but usually, the core thing that's interesting about a new investing platform is compelling right at the beginning, and it's it's earned based on experience or or insight or something by the founder. And we're trying to do that same thing every time we do it with Positive Sum, the investment the the, the venture firm that I run and, and started with my partner Sam Cates back in 2020 in the summer of 2020, it's, it's the same idea of like, we're going to be the first ones that literally just open. We were kind of already doing it through the podcast. We're going to open up everything we learn and give it back to as many people as we can by default, like all the time. Like there's going to be none of this, you know, hidden secrets, you know, behind the scenes stuff. We're just going to sh openly share everything all the time. And we think that's very well counter positioned against the industry, even the very best in the industry who are not doing that. Couldn't, in most cases couldn't do that or wouldn't do it or don't want to do it. And we want to do it. That's what we like to do is, is learn stuff and share it back. Um, our, our motto at OSAM was learn, build, share, repeat. Mm. I think that's portable for me, for me, at least kind of anywhere I go. Uh, it's certainly true at Colossus. It's true at positive sum. And uh, for some reason, not that many other people think that way or do it that way. So yeah, I think like any business, you have to do something different. There has to be a credible reason why you can do it why the timing's right and a signal from the market that it's in demand. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing, right. If your counter position is that there's institutional reasons or, or incentives or constraints that will ultimately uh, prevent like the other incumbents from, from replicating that. And I, and I guess sharing on the internet is one of those that it's for many organizations, it just won't happen. Was that something that became obvious to you afterwards or were you already, I mean, did you sit down when you, when you build canvas and you're like, and you took out the seven powers and you're like, okay, this actually like, nobody's going to be able to do that for X, Y, and Z reason. Or was it like afterwards you realized, Oh no, wait a second. We've tapped into something and there's actually a moat here, but it kind of evolved organic. Like, was that ex ante that you, 
you've thought about that strategically or it just became obvious later that it's um that the it's mix harder, of meat yeah sorry it, it's hard to remember like what the honest truth is after something has worked i think the truth is we were not interested we even filed for etfs at one point because we we're like we got to do something new like the, the business is kind of mature there's got to be there's got to be a next chapter a next a next book to write and so we thought maybe it's etfs you know we never managed etfs that's interesting uh we filed for them we did a lot of work and then we realized like oh my god that's the worst business ever talk about a sea of competition and a price war and a yeah. struggle for mind share and market share i mean it was like the perfectly bad business uh to go into and we realized that like in a moment on a in a morning and just abandoned it completely and so we were poking around, you know, we were, we were feeling around for, okay, this is what interests us that we're really good at. Here's what we've built. That's an asset to us, which we needed to build for some other reason, but only we have it. And here's something that people would care about or want. Like, what is the intersection of that Venn diagram or those three circles? And the, and it took some time. It took a year. Uh, so from the time I started running the business to when we had canvas on a whiteboard was one year. And and we tried lots of different stuff. We tried this thing called the Research Partners Program, which was a, a it was a kind of a similar concept, to be honest, uh, a very a small scale success, and was like, huh, it kind of o opened our mind to like, wow, we can just do whatever it seems interesting, despite convention in the industry. Like, I wasn't aware of any other program like that Research Partners Program, which produced some of the best research I think we ever produced, and if not the best, and so we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. We were inspired by Amazon Web Services and its story. Uh, we met with people all over the world uh, that that had built something interesting out of an existing asset base of technologies. And finally, we just alighted upon it of like, oh, okay, here, here's something we think is going to be true. Mm. We think that people are going to have their own portfolios in the future, that zero-cost brokerage trading and fractional share trading and the fact that most invest many investors are taxable and care deeply about their ta after-tax returns, all of these things come and have different beliefs and circumstances and preferences, all these things, that in a no-friction world, people's portfolios will be slightly different based on them and their DNA. And we just think that's where the world's going. And so we built something in that intersection and it just took off. So it, again, it wasn't like a like a master plan. It wasn't like we sat yeah. down and said, okay, we're going to do this thing. Uh, let's go do it. It was an experiment. It was a period of, ex of experimentation and exploration that had a lot of aspects to it, a lot of failures. And then we finally found something. And when we found it, it just worked right away. And I heard you comment that um, there was an idea you pulled from one of the podcast conversations, right, about uh, selling to enterprise customers about how you ultimately uh, build Canvas. And I'm curious how often that happens that you you record uh, an episode for Invest Like the Best or Founders Field Guide and, and you walk away and you're like, just, whoops, there, there was an idea that actually changes how you think about your life, your work. Like, how often do you have these turning points uh, where you just hit on a conversation? You're like, got to use that. I mean, I would say it happens every day. I have this, I use this um, app on the phone called, I think it's just called Things. It's just like a, Things. it's meant to be like a to-do list. Uh, but I just use that as like a way to jot down ideas. And and then what's nice about having it as in the format of a to-do list is I, what I do is I constantly enter stuff in there and I'm very excitable. So every time I come across one of these, I'm like, oh, this is game changing. You know, this is amazing. <laughs> and what I've learned about myself is like, I'm not, I'm a great judge of there being something there. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a, of like the binary. I'm not a great judge of like the, the gradient or like the magnitude mm. of how big of an opportunity it is initially. Yeah. And so what I've learned to do is I, I put something in there, you know, I could show it to you. Just, it's just like an endless yeah, scroll. Right. I mean, there's just, there's just yeah. constant, it's right? Just, okay. It's just constant. Uh, it's every day, all day, constant ideas. And then periodically when I'm just hanging out, I'll just open the thing up and I'll scan through them and I'll remember them. And if there's one that's there that I'm like, oh, that's that idea sucked. I just hit the the done button on the to do and it disappears from the list. Oh, and for me, this has just been really effective because what happens is the stuff that lasts where every time I check it, I'm seeing it for the 20th time, the 50th time, the whatever, and I don't delete it. Mm. It's a great sign to me that there's like something there. 
And invariably the ones that last all those, you know, double checks and triple checks, I end up using somewhere in some large or small amount. Um, and I just like that. It's like survival. It's like a survival of the fittest for ideas. Like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's incredibly low friction to get on that list. It's incredibly easy to remove something from it. It's, it's nice. It's light. It's fun. And, uh, so that's the answer is like, I I'm constantly putting things in there. I'm using them every so often. And then sometimes there's one, like the one you opened your question with from Chathan at benchmark mm-hmm. that like defines an era of my career, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's a hierarchy to it, but I, I like that system for capturing them. I like it because it sounds like you've both gamified it a little bit, right? It's an, an activity you repeat a lot and that's kind of fun, but it's also it reminds me of David's like the, his read wise, like all the quotes he's putting in there. And over time you have kind of this Lindy effect of the things that survive in your list are ultimately the things that, uh, um, that make sense. Um, I've heard you say before that um, you're, I guess, a good or great interviewer, but you hate to be interviewed. And I'm just curious, you've, you've done so many of them. Like, what do you think makes you or anyone uh, a good interviewer? And like, how, how do you, how would you say like your, I guess, style or approach to it has, has changed after hundreds of episodes? I mean, I guess at, at, at the core is I am very curious about how things work, work in general. We talked about game design. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in systems. I'm just, I just really like knowing how stuff works. I think I've always been like this. Uh, it's, it's probably innate and it's cultivated. I, I, I consider myself a very curious person. Um, the like moments of joy for me are when I figure out how something works, like a click of, I'm sure everyone's had the experience, like some click of understanding, like a second ago, I didn't understand this. And now I do that phase transition is, is a source of tremendous joy for me. I don't know why it just is. Um, so that's part one. And, and part two is I'm just incredibly easy, easily bored. I just, I, I just cannot stick around something that is boring me. Um, which I'm not saying that's just a positive. It, it's, it can be a large negative too, but that's just how I'm wired. I think that combination of things makes for good interviewers because if I'm bored, I'm a, probably a pretty good proxy for the listener yeah. and then they're bored. So if someone's boring me with an answer, like I just completely jump topics. Like I just get out of that, that zone. Uh, we edit boring stuff out after the fact. Like mm. I think avoiding boredom is a great, a great tactic for good interviewing. Don't ask and, and your own boredom, you know, like not what you think others will want yeah, or care about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that defines a lot of the great interviewers. Like if you go listen to Howard Stern interview, somebody couldn't be a more different style than me. I mean, couldn't be more different, but I do think those two things are there. Like he's deeply curious about the people and he doesn't want to talk about the normal stuff. He yeah. wants to talk about weird stuff because he's more interesting and it's, and that's why everyone tuned into Howard Stern for so long. Uh, so that to me is the recipe is like some sort of innate curiosity and like constantly not satisfied with the state of understanding that they have. They want to be, they want to know more and they're just bored easily. Uh, I think that's true of most of the great interviewers and it's definitely true of me and not to put say, myself in that group. Yes. Well, well, I think a lot of people would, but, um, is that what's the nature versus nurture there? And like, and, and I, you've talked about parenting before, like, is that actually something you'd want to cultivate in, you know, when you're raising children, maybe the curiosity? Yes. But the bourbon, I don't know. So like, how do you, I mean, certainly the curiosity, you know, my kids are eight and six. I think the best things that we can do for them is to show them a really great marriage between my wife and I show them good behavior and treatment of other people, you know, a lot of kindness and then cultivate, help them cultivate their curiosities. Like I think those are the three things that I can actually do and, 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 and not be judgmental of the curiosities. You know, if, if they're interested in something that I think is stupid or, or boring or whatever, like I can't, it's not me. I can't, I can't judge what they're interested in. Uh, so definitely, yeah, we want to feed, I want to feed everyone around me, me, not just my kids. Like I'd love to feed everyone's curiosities. So fun that way. Life is so fun that way. 
And on the boredom side, honestly, yeah, I'm fine with my kids being easily bored. I think the way the world is shaped now is that, you know, we're incredibly lucky. We can access kind of whatever we want if we're interested enough through the internet, through the digital world in the world of knowledge. Um, and, or even if it's something like travel, even something like travel is so much more accessible. You can, you know, get cheap flights, you can get uh, information on a place, you can do your research, you can communicate with people there on a social network. I think it's amazing what you can do. And uh, yeah, I think boredom can be, uh, is, is okay to cultivate and avoiding boredom is okay to cultivate. Uh, though I don't know that there's anything that we can do as parents that like encourage that. Uh, maybe we just don't discourage it, something like that. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you strike a balance between, I guess, preparation and I guess, you know, reading up on a guest and and trying to come up with your own questions and then spontaneity in the conversation. And, and what do you, what do you look for in a conversation that's really intriguing or interesting to you? And like that, you know, when do you follow rabbit hole versus when do you stick to your, your script and what you were in, what, what past you was interested in? Well, I guess the way I think about this is if you're always preparing, you don't actually have to prepare. And that's how I think about it. The interviews that I do almost all the time, again, save for a unique circumstance where someone says, someone I care about says and trust says, you got to talk to this person. And then I'm coming in a little bit more cold. Um, but most of the time, like by the time I interview someone, it's because I've already been preparing without meaning to, you know, David is a good example. Again, I was listening to all this guy's podcast. So I, I was doing it because I wanted to do it, whether or not I ever interviewed him. Same thing for everyone. If I read someone's investor letters or I read or I see them doing something else, like whatever the breadcrumbs are, uh, Sam Hinkie turned me on to that term, mm. uh, you know, always looking for these breadcrumbs. Uh, there's an amazing line that Danny Meyer, the restaurateur has it's ABCD, ABCD, which is always be collecting dots so that you can always be connecting dots. And whether you want to talk about dots or breadcrumbs or whatever, if your whole life is oriented around that collection, which mine is, then you're always preparing. And when I go into a given interview, you know, this Mitch, the Mitch one that we released this morning is just on my mind. Yeah. Uh, Mitch is an unbelievable domain expert. I mean, I wish I could talk to, I wish everyone I talked to was like Mitch in the sense that they live their life yeah. in an area of deep passion. He was an operator. He was an executive. He was an investor, enormous success in all three, but first and foremost, he's a fan. You know, he loves the world that he operates in. And you can hear it in his voice and in his answers. Like this guy just, know, he's got a dead to rights. He just knows it. And so you could ask the question on that one. Like, well, how did I prepare for that interview? Well, I prepared for it because I started talking to Mitch years ago yeah. about games because I like games. And I talked to him, I don't know, a lot. And I read a lot of stuff that he had written that he sent me. And I asked him questions and I knew his partners at Benchmark. And, and there, you know, there's this mosaic of stuff around Mitch. Mm -hmm. And none of that was because I was like, someday I'll interview Mitch. It was because I was interested in it. And so all that was really good preparation for, I think if you listen to that conversation, it sounds like I was really well prepared. It's because I was like, I was preparing for years. Yeah. Um, so again, like back to this compulsion, if you can put the compulsion at the center of your platform, everything becomes much easier because I'm compulsive about all this stuff. I'm always preparing. When I sat down for that conversation with Mitch, I didn't prepare at all. I literally showed up at the appointed zoom hour and started asking questions. Like I didn't, you know, I, I did some refreshers. I, I looked at some notes very briefly, yeah. but I didn't write, I don't, I never write any questions. I never send topics to the guest. I never do any of that stuff. Um, Cause I'm kind of preparing all the time. So it was like the, the final recorded conversation that the audience sees is kind of an organic uh, extension of all the conversations or the interactions you've had before. That That's true of almost every one of the best episodes of the ones I'm most proud of that are, you know, that I go back and listen to. It's almost always that same pattern of often years in the making, um, sometimes more condensed, uh, but often years. Can you tell? I mean, I, when you walk away from a conversation, do you have any sense? Do you have do you have a good predictive sense of how well it will do, or does does your own sense of quality correlate with you know just ultimately, I guess, viewership or metrics? I would say I can tell pretty well within minutes 
of the start of a conversation. And I can tell with close to near certainty by the end of a conversation. And I can, I can tell you and predict like exactly where in the stack rankings it'll end up in terms of audience. There, there is in podcasting, it's weird. Like the, the variance of the audience size is not like with some of the other formats. Like if you go on someone's TikTok or something, you'll scroll through and you'll see like, they're yeah. all kind of the same. And then you'll have one that's like a hundred X as big. That does not happen in podcasting. It doesn't spread like that. It's way mm. stickier. The audience is committed and around. The friction is very high to listen to a po- like hour and a half of a podcast. Like Jesus, you know, it's not 30 seconds on TikTok. Yeah. They're not as shareable inherently as other media formats. So you don't get like our number one episode, you know, I don't I actually don't know the stat off the top of my head, but if I had to guess our best episode ever is only like, it's definitely not 10 times as big as our worst one. Maybe it's four or five, six, some, you know, something like that. Um, but I can tell you like where, where it's going to end up with where occasion, occasionally I'm wrong, but usually I'm right. Interesting. I mean, I, I always feel like it has that little bit of a discoverability issue, which also means, I mean, it's good, I guess, for you as an incumbent, but it also leads to this kind of path dependency question, right? If you thought about it as a game and you took yourself and you put yourself back to level zero and you had kind of the same compulsions or the same interests, but you hadn't spent the last five, six, seven years building what you've built, right? Like, how would you go about counter positioning to, to invest like the best, right? Like, where would you start? if you had the same compulsions, but not the same um, audience or the, you know, and you looked at this as just like, well, there's path dependency. I can't recreate that exact same uh, pattern. Yeah. So I've never actually asked, thought of this question. Um, I wish I had some cool answer for like, this is what I would do differently now to kind of precision against myself. But I don't think that's true. I think I would do literally exactly the same thing. And I, and I think that I would get back to where I am now in six or seven years. You know, like I, I don't, I don't know that there's like a trick here. I think what you get on my podcast is just me. Like I'm not, it's not a, it's not a character I'm playing. It's just, it's just me. And that's a very sustainable strategy. <laughs> and so it's very hard for me to imagine that I would read, if I started with zero audience today, that I could or would do anything different. Cause I think the, in the long run, the only thing that is sustainable is in this specific example is being yourself. So if you're not that it's not going to work. And if you're not committed for the long term, it's not going to work. Like this is the worst. If you want to do a quick, you know, if you want quick wins, do not start a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible idea because it takes time and people commit to new ones reluctantly. And then usually once you commit, you get a new listener, you have them, if your show's good, you'll have them forever, but it's not a, it's not a viral. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's examples of podcasts that came out of nowhere and went to a, went to the moon. But usually if you dig into those stories, like someone pointed me to the Huberman lab podcast recently, which I know has been a, you know, a relatively rocketing success in the podcast yeah. world, but then you dig into like, why, you know, like, Oh, cause this guy's been studying this stuff for yeah. decades and decades. Yeah. And he's just like, putting a mic in front of himself now. Yeah. So he was also preparing for forever for this show. So in very, like, you're not going to find someone that's like not doing that, that just decides they want to do a podcast and it's like huge overnight. It's just not going to happen. So I think the answer is reluctantly, I would start over from zero and just do the same thing again. That's true. There's another example of somebody with a, with a deep compulsion and you're now getting the benefit of the best, best ideas. Um, you mentioned, I guess this was on the, on the trillions podcast. Um, and uh, you talked about, you had kind of an unconventional background for somebody in finance, right? Studying philosophy and you called, I guess, specifically Eastern philosophy, kind of your, your operating system. So I was just wondering, is that, you know, I guess what, what other aspects other than maybe growth without goals, which I don't know, but it may be at, at the hip it's joined, but like what other aspects, like it was just an interesting term. I was like, what does that, what does that actually mean? I think if you boil down the Eastern kind of viewer approach, there's this, there's this notion of unity or lack of separation um, or, you know, this idea that the second you start splitting stuff is where you get into trouble, right? Um, even good and evil or something very basic like that, that the fundamental nature of things of the universe is this is some sort of unity, right? And maybe the West might call this God or, you know, the East might call it, uh, you know, Buddha consciousness or something kind of quirky sounding, 
the, the idea is that there's this like one thing that we are all participant in and the notion of karma, for example, or of how you treat others is, is sort of like, if you recognize this as true, you'll behave a certain way. And I believe that it is true. And therefore I behave a certain way. And there's, there's these wonderful ancient passages that basically say, look, if, if, if you feed this thing, like it will feed you back. If you don't, it will starve you. And so all my views on my wanting to share back as much of what I learn as possible without doing any harm to anybody come from this, this, this notion that if I give something up and the best things to give up or give away are the ones that are hardest to give away. Like whenever I feel like I found something really proprietary, like, Ooh, I could ride this idea for a long time by myself. That's the one I know I should really give away because the reality is the world we call the firm positive sum for this reason too. Like the reality is the world's a big place. There's a lot, there's a lot of ways to win. A lot of stuff can coexist. Um, you know, at the top of any hierarchy, what I found is everyone knows each other and yeah, they're competing, but they're also offering ideas and they're in chats, WhatsApp chats together. And they may be fierce competition competitors in the media, but you know, they're chatting about their whatever in, in the WhatsApp. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's my view is like, we're all kind of participants in some, some similar underlying thing. And uh, therefore kind of everyone is you. That's where the notion of karma comes from. And uh, if you put a lot out there for others with not, with no expectation of a return of like a selfish return, you end up actually getting more than if you didn't do that. Uh, and I think it's a strange worldview because it's around it. Like it's not a business school case study or something like the inputs and the outputs don't connect via some easy to define formula. Yeah. You have no idea how it's going to come back to you. So you, ha it, it is a form. It is my form of faith. Like if I do this, it will come back. I have no idea how, um, but it will. And that's been my experience too. But if you were just trying to approach something strategically or rationally, you would never behave this way because yeah. you can never tie the input to the output. Right. It's sort of, I guess in the beginning, it's sort of this untested belief of, well, well this is kind of the belief system and you start doing it. And then hopefully over time, you're, you're proven right. Do any examples come to your mind of ideas that you thought you wanted to hold on to very tightly and then you felt... And then you actually like you share them and you're like, this is actually much better versus versus I mean, like, I. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I wasn't the one that shared it originally. Chathan was. But th that that one that Chathan shared about the strategy for taking an enterprise software product to market was. Uh, I mean, it, it was unbelievably impactful in my own business and experience. And I value it so much because it's literally the opposite of what I would have done had I not gotten the advice from him. I've done exactly the opposite. And the advice was, you know, simplified, find, spend a long time picking like five early customers mm. and commit to them that you're just going to build your solution for them. You've, you've built V1. So you're coming with something already. You're not just asking what they want. Like you're coming with something that they probably want. But once they opt into it, say, okay, we're going to commit to just extending the platform for you until you run out of good ideas to ask for, then we'll take some other customers. And so you basically let an early group that you carefully pick. So who you pick matters a great deal. Pull your, pull the marginal pieces of your product out of you. And that you do this for an uncomfortably long period of time. Chathan at the time told me one to three years. When he said three years, I was like Jeez. three years, like that's insane. Yeah. Um, you know, my impulse would have been like, we've got something good, sell it to as many, to yeah. anything that moves. Scale, you know, like bro. go as fast as possible. Yeah. And his logic was so compelling. And he had, you know, <laughs> one of the more successful enterprise SaaS investors of all time and, and had done, had seen this happen at companies that were some of the most successful software companies of all time. So we just kind of took him for his word and just did what he said. And it was remarkably powerful. And I guess the reason why sometimes it's the best things to share is it's really hard to implement. Like I said, it ran counter to my intuition yeah. and Chathan laid it out much better than I could. And in, in, in the very first podcast I did with him. And so it's out there. Like anyone can go listen to it and just do it. And I tell it to everyone that will and enterprise SaaS that will breathe. And it's not perfect. Like there's, you know, there's exceptions and there's ways you want to modify it. And, but the core idea is very powerful and still no one does it because 
you hear three years and you're like three years, you know, I'm a startup. Like that's like a lifetime. Um, how could I possibly do that? And so no one does. And I've, I've recommended people do it and they say they're going to do it and they kind of start doing it. And then they get a little bit down the path and they're like, well, shit, now we got even more that we can sell. Like, let's just start selling it. Um, so oftentimes the best advice is, uh, incredibly hard to actually implement. And, uh, that's the one that pops to mind as something incredibly powerful that it feels like you could build a whole career, just finding companies, telling them to do this while everyone else did it the wrong way and succeeding, but instead should be out there for anyone to grab and, and run with. Well, it certainly sounds like if you're saying if, if oftentimes the best advice, the best ideas are actually hard to implement for whatever reason, like in this case, maybe it's because if you're taking VC funding, right, there's certain growth and speed expectations and you have to navigate around that. Um, that certainly sounds like you could build a, a career on that. I, I'm wondering, I, I don't know if that's, if that's the reason, but if, if you think about the, at positive sum, right, the entrepreneurs that you work with, um, because this, this sounds like something where I, I don't know if as the, as the investor, you can help somebody implement an idea where maybe um, the intent incentives are such that, that normally they, they wouldn't, and they wouldn't feel like they have the space or the, you know, to maneuver and to experiment. And, and, you know, maybe this sounds more risky than, than other strategies. I don't know if you think about it that, that way, but um, it's interesting if you're saying like, it's a powerful idea, but people normally don't adopt it. Like, I, I don't know if you can, um, like, is that, is that something you can, you can do differently as an investor and, and, and help people do that? Or is this just, you have to find somebody who picks up the idea and, and actually runs with it? I think most really talented entrepreneurs don't need a ton of help on the idea front, right? Like, and almost by definition, if they do, it's not going to be a great entrepreneur. I do think that even the very best can benefit from the experience that an investor brings to the table, having seen a pattern a lot, mm. especially when like the true innovation is not the go-to-market strategy. Like in the case of Canvas, which is where we did this, like if we didn't have Canvas itself, none of this mattered, right? You need to have the thing to begin with. And I don't think any, if an investor is trying to supply you with that thing, like run the other direction, like investors, I think mistake founders desire for their capital for, for a founder's desire for them. <laughs> oh, well, their <laughs> and, advice and opinions. <laughs> yeah. And for their, and, and all the things that come with them. Um, I love it. And so they should, you know, anyway, I, I think the right kind of ideas or advice it's not even advice. It's an idea. It's a question. Like, did yeah. you consider doing it this way? Oh, and yeah. if you think that's dumb, great. You're the founder. Like, it's, you're going to know better than me yeah. almost 100% of the time. So I think the role, as I see it for myself and my team, is like we ask questions. We don't show up saying, this is how you got to do this. We come with a lot of questions. We're curious about the business. Did you think about this? What do you think about this? How does this work? And then we try to make connections, right? Like, ask questions and make connections. That's our, that's our job. And if we can do that exceptionally well over time, I do think we'll build up like a real, a real edge in advice. And maybe we'll earn the right to give some advice a decade from now. Um, but for now, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I think my experience is founders want the capital to fuel their business and they want someone that they can be, have a, as a confidant that they can trust that they can call when needed, but they don't want a steady stream of ideas and advice and uh, the classic one is like, did you see this competitor yet? You know, some large percent of texts from VCs to founders is like the website of a competitor. Have you seen this uh, PR? These people yeah. just started. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, of course we've seen it. You idiot. Um, so uh, yeah, that's what I think we can do is ask really good questions. The theme in my life and uh, not mistake what a customer actually wants from us for what we think they want. Um, David had this amazing line from Steve Jobs's uh, David Senra in our mm. episode, the the next era at, of Steve Jobs's career, where the insight was sometimes people start to mistake the customer's love of the work for love for them. Uh, you know, people love the work, not the yeah. person very often. Yeah. And if you make that mistake, it's a very dangerous mistake. Um, so I encourage people to think about that all the time. Like the love comes from the work. And the work is yeah. perennial. You have to keep renewing it. You have to keep doing it. You can't just be, you got to keep doing. I would assume like you have a fairly 
like a really smart audience. Do you, do you feel like, and just, just in general, right, the people with the capacity and are interested in this kind of stuff, but like, do you feel there are areas where you're interested in and people have blind spots? Meaning you think, you know, this person or this idea is super interesting and you keep pursuing it. And for some reason, it doesn't resonate as much with your viewers. And you're kind of thinking, okay, like, because obviously you're talking to sort of so people who are interested in similar topics. And like, do, do you run into issues where you just like, you push and for some reason, it's uh, others are not quite there yet? Gaming is probably the biggest one where I've done a lot of interviews on gaming businesses and companies on games I'm, I, I can't believe everyone isn't as interested in it as I am. And in general, that is one of those areas where my calibration of the success is off. Like, I think it's going to do better than it, than it will. Um, we've made some investments in that space that I think people might think are head scratchers. Like what the hell are you doing here? Uh, so gaming is, is definitely one that just like, there aren't famous gaming investors. Mm-hmm. There's like two and they're both retired. Um, there's not yet a new crop of them that seem to have made careers around that. Uh, so that's definitely one that feels like, how am I so much more interested in this than like everybody else, including a very switched on smart podcast audience? Uh, that's the one that probably pops. Yeah. Most immediately to mind. Got it. I'll fire you one last question and I'll, uh, sure. um, do you have, cause th- I was just struck by when I was talking to, to David, he had a very concise view of what he wanted his life to be like, or what he wanted, how he wanted to spend his time. So I'm curious if you have a view of what the good life means to you and, and what's actually important. Like, is, is that something, does that resonate the, the question? Like, what does it mean to you? Oh yeah. I mean, as a, as a philosophy major back in the day like the reason i chose that is this is like the only question that interests me right um uh yeah what do i want to do with my time what's life about uh all the fun philosophical metaphysical questions i love this stuff you know it con- the answer constantly changes it's a big search right and if if there's anything that i would love to be a represent to people is that i'm like a I, i'm just seeking all this stuff all the time and I'm always going to be, I'll probably never figure anything out. But if you're interested in seeking, like come along with me because it's really interesting. It's really fun. What do I optimize for? Like I optimize for learning. I optimize for freedom of time to be with my family, especially. I'm very, very focused on my kids and my immediate family, my wife. And I love nature. You know, I think it's a great teacher and a wonderful place to spend your time. And I lo- and, and therefore I love to travel because the world is such a beautiful place. And, and that's kind of it. Like I don't, I'm not a collector of stuff. I don't, um, I don't really have the, tra- some of the more traditional ambitions. I like people. I like learning. I love my family. I love to be outside. So I like to, I, I like movement, you know, like I like mm-hmm. to be in very good shape. Um, anything I can do to optimize for more of that stuff, I do. And I think I'm, I guess if I'm amazed by anything, it's that more people don't behave that way, that everyone has something they love or a set of things they love, but very few people really work to protect those things and, and to structure their life so that they get as much of the things they love and get joy from as they can. Uh, and that's it for me. Like that's, I don't, I think if you ask me that question in 10 years, like I'm not trying to build some holding company or build some, I'm not interested in my career IRR all that much. Yeah. Um, I expect it to be good, but I'm not optimizing for it. I, I expect to do very well in the things that I do, not because I want some achievement, you know, badge, but because the process of doing that is joyful to me. And that's it. Learning, reading, talking to people, spending time with people, moving in the woods, ideally, or outside somewhere on the water somewhere uh, with my family and my friends. That's pretty much it. I texted a friend recently. Uh, I was like, what if, what, if, what if the ultimate ambition of everyone is really just to like break bread with people they like? Like if you really dig into like the spoils of success, 
many times what you find the people with the most resources doing is spending time doing cool stuff with people they like. Yes. This is something that's fairly accessible all the time. Uh, so we should probably just do more of that. Like I'm going to fly down to Miami to see David sometime soon. I don't have an agenda. Like I just want to go see him. I just want to hang out with him. And I don't know where that's going to go, but I'm confident it's a good use of my time and it's definitely going to be enjoyable. And, you know, it turns out David's talking to all these incredible founders. Like I'm sure David will introduce me to some unbelievable founder sometime in the next 15 years. Right. And, and that alone will be worth a trip to Miami. I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just, I'm just making the point. This is the kind of like inputs outputs thing. Like the output will come. I have a faith. There's no rational reason for me to fly down to Miami and hang out with him for 10 hours or whatever it ends up being. I can't, I can't justify it to you uh, in a literal way, but I'm still going to do it. And so I do wonder, like, is that kind of what everyone's just like, if everyone had a limited resources, would they pretty much just do stuff they thought was cool with people they love? Like, I kind of think that the answer is yes. Yes. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) So why not just do that sooner and see where it leads you? Uh, I think it's an interesting question for everyone to ask themselves. I love that. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a beautiful point to to uh, to leave it off, and and I wholeheartedly agree. And I'm, uh, it's nice to meet somebody like David or, or anybody really without an agenda, without it being transactional mm. and kind of immediately interested in in that. 